Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 9. And we'll be looking at verses 31 through 43. And we'll be looking at Christ's ministry of healing uh, through Peter. Acts chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 31. And as I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts 9, starting in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now Peter was traveling through all those regions, and he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with him. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Well, for the last, uh, well, really the, the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 9, we have uh, Luke, under the guidance of the Spirit, has told us about this incredible conversion of Saul. And uh, his early ministry after he was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now Saul fades into the background. He's taken off center stage for a few chapters. And uh, Luke now brings Peter back to the forefront. And probably part of the reason for this is remember uh, Saul is now up in Tarsus and he's going to be there for an 8 to 10 year period. So it's quite a long stretch that we don't know anything about Saul's future ministry. So... The Spirit of God inspiring Luke to bring Peter back in 
before our, uh, our eyes so that we can see what the Lord is still doing through Peter in some incredible healings and preaching of the gospel. So that's where we're at here at the end of Acts chapter 9. So we begin in verse uh, 31 where it says that the church was enjoying peace. It was going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It was continuing to increase. And this may be because some of the persecutions that we saw earlier in Acts were now starting to subside a little bit. Also, the main persecutions were probably there in Jerusalem. And some of the smaller villages out in the other areas were not experiencing the degree of hostility that you found in Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin were and all the great enemies of of Christ were located there. But also remember their chief persecutor, Saul, now has been uh, miraculously transformed and changed into a new man in Jesus Christ. So there's a significant decrease in persecution uh, for a period of time. So the church is enjoying that time of peace and prospering in the things of the Lord. Uh, with this in mind, Peter in verse 32 now begins to travel throughout all the regions. Uh, that would be the regions mentioned up in verse 31. Galilee, Samaria, places like that. And he comes down to a city called Lydda, and there he's visiting the saints. And this is obviously a a little church was there as a result of the previous persecution when the disciples were scattered throughout the region preaching the gospel. Little churches were formed in these towns, so Peter is now going to visit them and to minister to them. And he comes to Lydda. Notice he... uh, calls them in verse 32, saints. He calls the believers saints in Lydda. And uh, saints only occurs four times in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke's favorite word to describe believers is the word disciple. That is a follower of Jesus Christ. But here they're referred to as saints. Saints are holy ones. That is those who have been sanctified by Christ. So have been set apart for God's holy purpose. Um, it does not re- saints does not refer to some special super class of Christians that are somehow uh, graduated and set apart in some special place in heaven like the Catholic Church teaches. That's not really a biblical use of that word for saint. Uh, and so it doesn't refer to a special class of believers in heaven or on earth. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. We are all holy in Christ Jesus. We've been imputed with the very righteousness of Christ. And we're gradually being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So if you're a believer this morning in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. You have been set apart by Christ for His glory and for His honor. In verse 33 and 34, uh, Peter finds a a man by the name of Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Now he's probably among the saints, so we would assume that Aeneas is a believer. Uh, We don't know the extent of his paralysis other than that he's bedridden, which may imply more than he's just lame in his legs. He could have been a paraplegic as far as we know. We don't know for sure. 
But probably other people had to dress him. Other people had to feed him, sit him up, carry him, wash him, clean him every day. Uh, and you could just imagine, even as a believer, just the, the emotional toil that that would have on you. Uh, just the discouragement, the depression that you might have because you cannot care for yourself. So, Peter finds this man, Aeneas. And this man, again, has been in this condition for eight long years. So apparently, we assume he's a man. He's a grown-up. So he had experienced much health within his life, but he must have had an accident or some disease or whatever that, that basically paralyzed him. And again, he'd been in that condition for eight years. And then we read in verse 34 that Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. Now notice that uh, Peter's quite clear. He is not healing that man. This is Jesus Christ heals you. It's Christ who heals, not Peter. But this is really a, a miracle when he says to get up and make your bed. And this is a miracle really, as Chuck Swindoll says, that every parent can appreciate. Because some parents... Many parents have been telling their kids or teenagers for years to get up and make their bed and nothing happens. But Peter says it once and a paralytic obeys and gets up and does it. So every parent wishes they could speak with such power to their children in the morning. But the amazing thing is Aeneas immediately gets up. This is an immediate healing. That's what you find in Scripture. This is not a, a gradual turnaround after weeks and months of physical therapy, but an instantaneous healing miracle of God Almighty. And this is really in contrast to a lot of the so-called healing ministries today that are gradual or temporary. This was an incredible exhibition of the power of, of Almighty God. You know, what's interesting about this miracle is I think it's intentionally uh, to remind us of the Lord doing similar healings as well. Remember back in Mark chapter 2 when the friends of the lame man uh, lowered him down through a hole they made in, in a roof and they lowered him all the way down to get him close to Jesus and Jesus said to that man, get up. Pick up your pallet and go home. And he immediately got up. And Jesus did similar miracles like this. And I think what this is designed to show in part is that it confirms Peter as an apostle of Jesus Christ that he has some supernatural gifts. Remember in John 14, Jesus said to His disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also. And obviously the apostles had these incredible gifts uh, that were miraculous in nature. They were the gifts of, of healing and speaking in tongues and other things like that. And, the, and again, the main purpose of these miracles was to authenticate the preaching of the Gospel. And uh, since 
We have the full canon of Scripture today. I think that's one of the reasons why those particular supernatural gifts have faded away. You don't see them anymore. God is still very active in His world, obviously, but those, those gifts of healing and miracles are not with us because the Gospel has been fully authenticated by the completion of the canon. But the response to this miracle we see in verse 35, that all who lived in Lydda and Sharon... Now, Sharon is actually the long plain that goes up along the Mediterranean Sea. Lida was in that plain, but it's, the plain was 10 miles wide and about 50 miles long right along the coast of the Mediterranean. And as the news spread about Aeneas being healed, many of them turned to the Lord and were saved. In verse 35, it says, all who lived in Lydda, and again, the word all sometimes doesn't mean every single individual, but it could just be a large number of people. We don't know the exact number, but uh, a great revival apparently broke out as a result of this healing that occurred in Lydda. In verse 35, it says, they turned to the Lord, which certainly implies they came to saving faith. They were baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 36 and following, we have the second great miracle. And this occurs in the raising of Tabitha from the dead in the city of Joppa. So we read in verse 36, Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. And this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. We see the character of Tabitha here. And that in verse 36, she's called a disciple. So again, she's also a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also in verse 36, we see a general description of her character, her mercy, her service to the church there when it says that this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity which she continually did. She was abounding with deeds. Not just words, Lord bless you, but here, let me get my, my sewing needles out and let me, let me make you some clothes. So she followed up, no doubt, godly, merciful words with merciful deeds and actions. She was full of charity. And notice she did this continually, not just occasionally, this was the habit of her life. Uh, she was a woman, you know, some people would compare her today or recently with someone like a Mother Teresa, assuming Mother Teresa had understood the Gospel. Uh, or better, maybe an Amy Carmichael and just the mercy ministry to all the poor and suffering children and women in India. Uh, this, is, this is Dorcas. This is, this is Tabitha. In verse 39, we now have specifics of what she actually did. When she had died and she was laid in the upper room in verse 39. And all the widows stood beside her weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas had used to make while she was with them. So here of all these widows, other probably ladies ministering within the church, and as the tears were streaming down their cheeks, they would, they would keep bringing out and showing Peter all the tunics and all the garments that Dorcas had made in her mercy ministry to the church and others. 
A tunic is basically uh, worn next to the skin. It would be an inner garment. Uh, the word for garments probably is outer, more outer clothing. So she was quite the seamstress. She was uh, a sower. That was her ministry, was to sow. You know, a lot of people have different callings and different ministries. Some teach, some serve, some go on missions and go around the world and preach the Gospel. And we have many, many different ways that we can serve the Lord. She did it with her hands. She did it with those two needles and and thread. Of course, back then, she might have even had one of those ancient machines that might have helped to, to weave things together. But she worked with her hands and she would give the product of her hand in mercy ministry and gifts to those who are in need. She was an incredible blessing to this church. But now she had passed away. And they had... Those uh, believers in Joppa had heard that Peter was in Lydda. Lydda was about 10 to 12 miles away. So they, they quickly sent two men to go down and fetch Peter and to bring him back and to, to have him come quickly. It's interesting that in verse uh, 37, that when she died, they washed her body and they laid it in an upper room. And again in verse 38, they send immediately, they send two men and they implore Peter in verse 38, do not delay in coming to us. I, I wonder why they did that. They knew Peter was, you know, 10 miles away in another town. Why did they call for Peter? Um, he had never performed a, a, a miracle of resurrection before. Uh, Do they just want him to see this dear, precious servant of the Lord before they buried her? They just—they had just washed her body and put her in an upper room. That's normally not what you would do with a, a body, maybe for a short time. Were they wanting Peter to come and maybe preside at Tabitha's memorial service? We don't know. Or could they even begin to hope that maybe? Peter would raise her from the dead. Uh, we simply just do not know. But they wanted Peter there for whatever reason was in their heart. And they asked him to come quickly. In verse 39, Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him up into the upper room. And again, all the widows are showing all the clothes that Dorcas had made. In verse 40, Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Notice Peter clears the room. Don't know why. Just wanted to have some private time with the Lord. We're told that... uh, He kneels down, maybe next to the bed, and He prays. Because again, this is going to be Jesus doing the miracle, not Peter. But Peter gets down, he asks the Lord probably to to do this marvelous thing. And the Spirit of God just brings this conviction into Peter's heart and just lets him know that this is what the Lord's going to do through him, using him as a, ve- as a vehicle for this incredible miracle. And so we're told uh, 
again in verse uh, 40 that he says to Tabitha, Tabitha, arise. And she miraculously does. Now, resurrections like this are rare. Even in the Bible, they're very rare. And maybe the only ones we ever know of that have ever occurred are recorded for us in the Bible. There are two in the Old Testament. One by Elijah. One by Elisha. And then there's five recorded in the New Testament. Three by the Lord Jesus Himself. Jairus' daughter who had died. Lazarus. And the widow of Nain's son. And then the two extra ones, one by Peter here, and then one by Paul later on in the book of Acts. The gift of healing we're still today. Why for nearly 2,000 years have we not experienced any more resurrections? They're rare, but if someone has that gift, that's a part of the gift. And we never see those. So it's a, more, a little more evidence for me that that gift is no longer in operation today. But Peter had never done this before. He had done healings, but he had never been used of Christ to actually raise someone from the dead. And it's clearly that the Spirit of God is leading him in all of this. Again, Peter's miracle, like uh, the healing of the paralytic Aeneas, the raising of Tabitha from the dead reminds us of what Jesus Himself had done previously. Remember Mark chapter 5 when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus. He also put them all out of the room except for the father and the mother and Peter, James, and John. But everyone else He sent out of the room similar to what Peter had done. He remembered that because He was one of the few disciples who actually witnessed that resurrection. He also, Jesus took the child by the hand and spoke to her, not Tabitha arise, but Talitha arise. The only difference is in one letter. Tabitha arise, that's what Peter said. But Jesus has said to the little girl, Talitha arise. Talitha means little girl in Aramaic. And she immediately gets up. And again, I think what the Spirit of God is doing is showing us that as did the Lord Jesus, so He empowered to work the same types of miracles through His disciples. Another confirmation of Peter as a role as, a, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are several um, lessons that I think we can kind of glean from these two miracles. The first one is, uh, again, just being reminded of who God used to heal Aeneas and to raise Tabitha from the dead. It was Peter. I mean, it was Peter. And I think it reminds us that if God can use a man like Peter, remembering the kind of man that he was, that God can use you and God can use me to be great blessings to other people. Um, talk about a flawed vessel. That was Peter. He was a cracked pot and yet in many ways was used for Christ's glory. And it just shows that God can use anybody. James Montgomery Boyce reflects on Peter uh, that he's compared to a tempestuous nature of the Sea of Galilee. 
Remember the Sea of Galilee could, the drop of a hat experience unpredictable storms and changes in weather. And Peter was a man of a similar nature. Peter was a man who was unpredictable. He was tempestuous at times. He often spoke too quickly. We'd say he'd stick his feet in his mouth. Or he, he acted without thinking. He was an impulsive and sometimes blinded by his own pride. And, and we can identify with Peter so often because we do the very same things. Just a few examples to remind you of the kind of man that Peter was to encourage us that God can use anybody uh, to bring glory to His name. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, these are very familiar with all of us, when Christ was enveloped in the brightness of the divine glory, His face shining like the sun, His garments lit up as white as light, and then Moses and Elijah appear next to the Lord Jesus, and Peter is there with James and John, only those three, and he sees this, in, this incredible vision of Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And he wants to honor all three equally. He wants to build a tent for all three of them individually and honor all of them. Which was really totally missing the point. Because the only reason Moses and Elijah appeared there was to honor Christ and to bring attention to Jesus Christ, not themselves. And so in the midst of Peter's words before Peter had even stopped speaking, then the Lord rebuked Peter by a bright cloud that enveloped them and overshadowed them. And God the Father spoke out of the cloud and said to Peter, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Ignore Moses and Elijah. Listen to my Son. And so the Lord had to rebuke Peter. And that was one of those occasions when it's time to extract foot and toes out of the mouth because he spoke rashly. Peter was one of those guys whose mouth could be engaged in drive, the drive gear while his brain is still in park. And I think we can identify that. And just, you know, how many times have we embarrassed ourselves by saying something stupid at the wrong time? Thinking, well, you know, God can't use me. No, that's the kind of people God can use. And then think of Peter's often uh, explosions of pride that tripped him up so often. Remember back when Peter made that famous confession when Christ said, who do men say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But you know, it's rare for Peter to get something right like that. And it probably shocked everybody. And Jesus didn't want it to go to his head. And he reminded Peter that it was his Father in heaven who had revealed that truth to him. He just didn't come up with it on his own. The Father had revealed that to him. And I would imagine Peter at that time began to think, wow, the Father revealed this truth to me and not these other guys. You know, I'm pretty special. And uh, it was at that time that Jesus went on to tell His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise again. Peter probably only heard suffer and die. And in the fullness of, of just reveling in the revelation that the Father had given him, that he maybe was something special, hearing Jesus say something so wrong 
that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, that Peter then had the audacity to rebuke the Lord. And he said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter, full of himself. And at this point, Jesus had rebuked him. Get behind me, Satan. For you're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And that we just find that here at one moment, he was, Peter was speaking God's truth. The next moment, he was speaking, speaking Satan's lie. Not a very good start for the first pope. But we do this very same thing. We can say some things profound and get all arrogant and boastful about it. Then we just turn right around and say something that's heretical. And we just find ourselves sometimes as being, you know, up and down like a weather vane spiritually sometimes. We're just inconsistent. That was, that was Peter. And then Peter, uh, when Jesus told his disciples right before his arrest, Jesus said to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But Peter's pride again got the better of him. You remember what he said? He said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away, Lord. I'm your man. You can count on me. Lion-hearted. I'm with you to the end. And Peter spoke those arrogant words full of self-confidence. Jesus then rebuked Peter telling him this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter's pride would not be humbled. So he contradicted the Lord. And he said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Well, when they came out to arrest Jesus, Peter was pretty bold at that point in time. He pulled out a sword. He cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, ready to defend Jesus until Jesus had to rebuke him again. Put away your sword. If I wanted to, I could call down twelve legions of angels. This is God's plan. Put away your sword. And at that point, Peter began to change. Fear began to creep in. That pride somehow began to to shrivel up. His love for Jesus made him follow Jesus as they were arresting him, taking him to the high priest. He followed at a distance though. He's scared. Just like Jesus said, the sheep would scatter. He went into the courtyard of the high priest only because John helped him get through the gate, vouching for him. He entered into the very camp of the enemy. Jesus is over here in the darkness. They're, they're interrogating Him. He's over there warming Himself by the fire. And there three times, as a little girl came up and identified Him, He denied He knew the Lord. It happened a second time. It happened a third time. And just like Jesus had told him, Satan sifted him like wheat. Peter, big, proud, bold, strong Peter was now turned into a whimpering coward who couldn't even 
face up to tell a little girl that he knew the Lord, much less was his follower and disciple. Well, Peter was shamed by his denial of the Lord. And when he looked over at Jesus in the light of the charcoal fire that he was at, and, and he looked over and in the midst of where Jesus was surrounded by the chief priests interrogating him, Jesus looked up and looked at Peter straight in the eyes. And that gaze struck his heart like a thunderbolt. The guilt and the shame just rushed all through his body. And he ran out weeping. Because here this man who had promised in such confidence that I will die with you. And though everyone else forsakes you, I will be faithful to you to the end. Turned out to be a pure coward. To shame the Lord. To be a traitor. To go AWOL in our Lord's most desperate moment. He wept and He ran. And later on at the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection of our Lord, that's when Jesus restored Peter back to the ministry by asking him those three questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered yes all three times. What we learn from this tragic life of failure, this life of denial, this life of sin and pride and arrogance, and speaking when he ought to be silent, and being silent when he ought to speak, is that God uses failures and sinners and people that have have blown it a hundred times. But in the depth of His grace and glory, His power can come in and use people like us. And I think this is the great encouragement of Peter healing Aeneas and Peter being the vessel of raising a woman from the dead. I mean, you don't get any better than miracles and things like that. And yet, God used Peter to do something like that. And if God can use a Peter, He can use you. And He can use me. It's not our education that makes us useful to God. It's not our vocation. Peter was just a simple fisherman. It's not our status among men that makes us useful in the eyes of God. Nor is it our past successes or even our past failures. But it's the power of God's grace fixed upon those who by His grace have a desire to be useful to the Master and to serve in His kingdom. It's just simply the heart. It's not our past sins, our past failures, or how many times we've blown it. Do you have a heart that you want to serve the Lord? Has God given you a heart that wants to please Him, to serve Him, to be useful in His kingdom? These are the kinds of failing sinners that Christ is pleased to use for His honor and His glory. And again, that's why there's hope for you and me. God can use you like Peter. No, you don't how you won't have a supernatural gift to do miracles or healing. But he can use your prayers. And he can use your acts of kindness and charity. 
to be a great blessing to many and use you mightily for His kingdom. And carrying the Gospel to the lost and doing acts of kindness and however the Lord leads you in your ministry, He can use you. And if you want to be used, you call out and ask the Lord to use you. And I bet that He will. The second great point that I think we can learn from this is just a a glimpse of the glory to come. I think both of these miracles, both the healing of the paralytic and the raising of the dead, are designed to give us a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the greater things to come in glory. This is what C.S. Lewis called as the, the miracle of reverse. And what we see is that when, when uh, Aeneas was healed from his paralysis, uh, he eventually grew old and sick again and died. And when Tabitha was raised from the dead, she eventually died again. But all of these little miracles, regardless of the, the measure that they uh, are in or the, 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 the type of disease or sickness or even death that they're temporarily overcoming, it's just to give us a little foretaste, a little, a little glimpse of what the glory of our resurrection body will have in the days yet to come. You see, all the effects of sin and all of the results and consequences of the fall of Adam bring all of the disease and the sickness and the illness and all the things we suffer with in this life. And all of those sometimes by God's grace, not all of them, but some of them will be temporarily reversed by the miraculous power of God. And it's at those times that we get to, to see something, a glimpse, a little tiny little slice of this incredible future glory when all the effects of sin will be removed. Not just temporarily, but forever and ever and ever for the redeemed, for those who know Jesus Christ. For we're told in the book of Revelation that in that day, there will no longer be any disease or disabilities or sickness or sorrow or even death for all of Adam's curse and all of its consequences will be reversed. And until that day, even our creation that we live in groan as do we in our sinful bodies anticipating the coming of the new creation when Christ will set us and the cosmos free from the slavery of this corrupt and fallen world into the full glory and health of our redeemed body and our redeemed universe, the new heavens and the new earth. And in light of that, I think it's designed to make us pause and to give thought and reflect upon the glory which is yet to come, that all these healings are just a little bit of a down payment, a little bit of a foretaste, just to get a little brief sense of the aroma of the sweetness of the glory of the perfect healing that all believers will have in heaven. That's why we read verses like 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
See, the Scriptures encourage us to, to fix your hope on that future day. All of the grace that will be brought to you when Christ comes back. Fix your hope there. Think about it. Meditate upon it. Get just a little bit of a, of a, of a whiff of the glory that awaits us. John says in 1 John 3 that we're children of God. And, but it has not appeared as yet what we will be. For we know that when He appears, that is when Christ comes back, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And then He adds to that. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him, that hope of being like Him when He shall appear, whoever has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself even as He is pure. In other words, when we, when we get these little reminders of God's glory and the healing of Aeneas and the raising of Tabitha, that that's just a, a little bit of a down payment of this future incredible glory. And we look forward by faith to that day and we glory in it and we long for it. It will have a purifying, sanctifying effect upon us even here and now. So that all of our trials and troubles and stresses and pains will seem a little bit lighter as our soul is lifted on the winds of the glory day yet to come. And that's what I think these two miracles remind us of. That yeah, they were glorious, but they were only temporary. But they await the day when our healing will be eternal and glorious. Well, as you know, our church has gone on many uh, summiteer trips over the years. And uh, one of the men that used to be a member of the church, used to be a deacon in the church that no longer uh, is here, he lives in Colorado, is Bill Hickman. And many of you all know Bill. And uh, Bill is quite an athlete and it's always a joy. He still joins us on the summiteer trips. I remember hiking up a mountain with Bill one time and and we stopped to catch our breath and to drink water. And, and, and you know, we're just kind of on this trail surrounded by all these pine trees and spruce trees. And, and we could gaze down into the valley and see the other man. It is glorious. And Bill just stood there and he just, just took a big old deep breath and closed his eyes. And I'm just kind of standing there looking at him. I said, what are you doing? He said, can you smell it? Can you smell it? And it was the smell of all of the pine and the spruce trees. And, and it's just it's something you only really get when you're at an altitude like that and, and you're high up and you're surrounded by all those trees and it's just the, the air is so clear and rarefied and, and you can smell it. And he just relished in that smell. He, he's an outdoorsman galore. And he just, he, it just uh, man, he just gloried in the moment. High up on a mountain, smelling that, that sweet air of all the scented pine trees that were there. And then on another trip, I remember he's doing the same thing, but he pulled out an empty water bottle. And he took the lid off and he squeezed it. And he opened it back up and started doing this. And, and I said, Bill, what are you doing? And he says, well, I want to fill up my bottle with this air. I mean, it smells so great. And I'm going to cap it up. I'm going to stick it in my backpack. And then on Monday morning when I'm, I'm back at work, when nobody's looking, I'm going to get that thing in. I'm going to open it up. 
and smell that and remember this incredible experience I'm having right now. And uh, Bill was great like that. But that's what these texts of Scripture really are designed to do. These little temporary miracles, these verses of looking forward, it's like uncapping the bottle and getting a, just a tiny little whiff, a, a scent of the aroma of the heavenly glory land that awaits us. The Mount Zion in heaven. The high country of glory. And we've never been there. We've never arrived there yet. But we can get a glimpse, a foretaste, a little smell of what that will be as we reflect upon what the miracles are doing in this life to point our minds forward to that glorious day when we arrive in the, in the high country of heaven in the very presence of Jesus Christ. And that's what they're, they're designed to do for us. To point our souls to heaven and all that Christ has won for us. That we can rejoice in these miracles in Scripture. In the times when God answers prayer even now and, and intervenes His glory into the midst of our circumstances and, and, and supernaturally works in our lives even now. All of that is just a, a little whiff, a scent of the glory that awaits us in heaven. Well, our usefulness in serving the Lord by His grace, that if God can use a Peter, He can use people like us. And all these miracles that point forward to the glory yet to come is only possible because Jesus Christ came down from heaven and died on the cross bearing our sins so that all of the curse of Adam's sin, all of our sickness, all of our sin, all of our diseases one day will be eternally removed. Our sins are now totally forgiven, thank God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we only have the first fruits of the blessings. The full harvest yet awaits that future day. And so none of that is possible without Jesus Christ coming and dying and bearing the consequences of our sin and paying the full price of our iniquities. And that's what provides the grace for us to serve Him now and to look forward to inherit the glory yet to come. So it's our great privilege now to go back to the source of all of these blessings. And that is in Christ crucified and raised from the dead. I would remind you that um, this is the Lord's Supper, not just the Supper of Northwest Bible Church. And we invite every believer who has repented of their sin and put your faith only in Jesus Christ to save you, that we invite you to examine your hearts, confess any sin that might be there, and then to freely partake remembering Jesus Christ and rejoicing in His death to save us from our sins. We use unleavened bread because it's a fitting symbol for the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And we break it as an audible reminder of just the suffering and the violence that His body and flesh endured as He bore the penalty for our sins.